Next Chapter Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The 500, the 500, J.A.M. been walking us down through that 2012 edition, so it ain't nothing to new. Hundreds more to go and in need of a friend, the king of peace for Angelo, talking the 500 until the end, talking the 500 until the end. With my man J.M. On the 500, talking the 500 until the end. 100% Sting fucks to the extended version of this song. 18-hour orgasm stingy, stingaling, my man, Gordon. I think it's Gordon Sumter, who knows? The song's Walking on the Moon, Walking on the Tune by the police from the 1979 record Regatta de Blanc. It's also number 372 out of 500 on my show, The 500, with me. I am Josh Adam Myers. Uh, people call me the King of Fleece. People call me the King Cadoogle. You can call me a Doogly Spoogle. And you guys are tuning in. And you're following along on this journey. Man, oh man, Ashevitz, it's a long one. You know what's funny? Is I, I, we did the Jefferson Airplane app, and then the day that after we recorded it, I was watching the QAnon documentary on HBO, and they end it with the January 6th insurrection. I don't know if you might have heard of it. And they played this like choir version of White Rabbit. And then I went down uh, Jefferson Airplane rabbit hole. So I don't know who sings it. If somebody can message me and let me know where I can get that version of White Rabbit from the QAnon into the Storm documentary, man, I will love you. Do you want to see me on tour? Because I got a couple dates. Well, first of all, this weekend, uh, I'm in uh, Columbus, Ohio with uh, Big J Okerson uh, at the Funny Bone. We're going to be there Thursday through Saturday, and then I'll be back in L.A. Then May 13th through the 16th, I will be in Phoenix, Arizona, out the house of comedy. Out. Out the house of comedy. You know what I meant. House of comedy. Six shows. It's going to be great. Headlining pretty fun. I will be in New York 
from the 17th until the 23rd of June. So check all the clubs like the Cellar, New York Comedy Club, Stand, my home, the Stand. Be there and just I'll be up. I'll be going up a lot, New York people. And uh, and then Thursday, June 24th through the 27th, I will be at the St. Louis Funny Bone. And then August. August 5th through the 7th, I'll be at the DC Comedy Loft, all headlining shows. I think I'm going to be at Magoobies with Big J in June. I might. I don't know. I want to go to Baltimore. I want to get some crab cakes. But yeah, go all and go all. Go and get those tickets at joshadammyers.com backslash shows. But you can just go to joshadammyers.com and that's where you can find out for my personal uh, Patreon page. And you guys can join the club's Patreon page where every Wednesday you get the 500 videos for people paying $5 or more a month. Patreon.com backslash the 500 podcast. Support the show, guys. Support the show. Subscribe to the YouTube. Every Thursday, we drop the videos. So this week, we are doing The Police. And I think this is our third record on The Police train excited because this is when we're really starting to get into the thick of it i really do enjoy this band i love the hits and it's really cool to listen to some of their tunes because it's like you start to hear how it evolved into what sting's doing and it's just great just a great record and we have a great guest today to talk about that the one and only david wayne you know him from the state you know him from stella he's the director and co-writer of wet hot american summer role models the list goes on and on and he is a trip man we had a very very good time talking to him and uh, i i don't like to throw around the word comedy genius but let me tell you guys he is rate review and most importantly subscribe to the 500 and listen free on all platforms if you're listening on apple leave us a rating five stars leave a review follow me at josh adam myers on all social media come on people follow me Email the podcast, 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, The 500 Podcast, with Jam, run by Crazy Evan. And for all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, nothing left to say, but oh, here we go. We're number 372 out of 500. We're gonna be blown by the What's up, everybody? Before we get into this podcast, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Sunset Lake CBD. Now, you have heard a bunch of CBD entities out on the market, but we might be promoting the best one there is. They started in Vermont as a dairy farm producing milk for the delicious Ben & Jerry's ice cream. And if you've never had Chubby Hubby by Ben & Jerry's, do yourself a favor, because pretzels, ice cream, reminds me of my bubby. But this company, Diversified, started growing hemp for CBD, and they have every product you could possibly think of that CBD can be infused with. They have actual flour that is great. They have cigars, like blunts, and they have joints if you love smoking. They mellow you out, not too, you know, cadoodle in the brain, just enough jib jab to make you feel good they have tinctures which i take and i give to the dog my dog acts better it it takes away all my anxiety they have gummies that are so delicious that you want to eat more than one they're better than most candies and they have coffee with cbd to help get rid of that stress the aches and pains they got a cream for that too sunset lake cbd will save you money by shipping high quality cbd products directly from their farm to your door and we're going to give you 20% off all products if you use code JAM500. So 
Go to www.sunsetlakecbd.com. Use code JAM500 for 20% off all products. Once again, that's www.sunsetlakecbd.com. Use JAM500 as the code for 20% off all products. And now, uh, back to the bus. David, I, I I almost this morning had to had to move this recording because I got the second Pfizer shot yesterday. And, oh yeah, and I, everything was fine. I did two shows last night. I went out to eat to Little Tony's in the Valley, and then went to bed uh, watching the QAnon documentary. And I woke up at like four in the morning, and I thought I was dying. I also had the second Pfizer shot and I was knocked out for a day. I would have canceled that second day. Well, this was important because we're trying to get everybody from the state on. We've had Carrie. Oh, good. Uh, Carrie. Uh, what did you talk about? Probably Michael Jackson. No, PJ Harvey. Okay. Fair enough. Well, this is the thing. Was we had no, I had no idea that she was like in a rock band prior to, you know, do, or while she was still doing comedy. Uh, An amazing band. Oh, An yeah. Incredible band. But, it, yeah. but she was great. So we're, we're going to eventually by the time we have, I guess we have another 350 records to do. So I have a feeling, yeah. I have a feeling we can get pretty much everybody by the time this is over. I think Mark Marin pulled it off eventually. He got every single one. All 11 of us. Oh, really? Well, yeah, but yeah. He, that's Marin though, dude. I mean, I, mean, I, know. I am. I am apples and oranges. Myers and Marin. I, just, I never mix them <laughs> in my brain. I am kind of afraid of Mark Marin, by the way, too. I I've done you know, we're both regulars at the store and it's like I I've jammed with him. He's done the goddamn comedy jam, which is a music comedy show that I have. And and he's shredded on guitar and we've had a, we've had just great moments on stage. But off stage, I am so afraid of him. I think he cultivates that fear. I had that same re- relationship with him. He did our live show Stella in New York for years and. It was always like, oh, am, I, am I saying the right thing? <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay, let me just. Did I did I step on that? Did I say everything right? Like, I get so like self conscious when I'm talking to him and to Joe Rogan. But Joe Rogan scares me just because Joe Rogan is just one giant lat muscle. So from that, <laughs> uh, so but the police, the police, the police, the police. Uh, this is our third record on uh, this list. So we've done Synchronicity. Uh, what was the other one we did? Outlandis to more. Outlandis to more, and now this one. Um, Regatta de Blanc. Regatta de Blanc. But I, uh, you know, I've always been somebody that kind of was like in and out uh, with this band. I know all the hits, so it's been really fun for me to just like really dive into these records. But uh, we asked to try to get you on a while ago, and then when this came out, you specifically said The Police. So, so tell me your journey with the band The Police. I mean, you know, I'm 51 years old, so the the height of the police was the height of my preteen kind of really getting into rock music and getting into music and, and also starting to play in bands as a as a young preteen uh, wannabe drummer. And so I really just was like, what is this? I, I fell in love with the police. One, one, one memory I have was being at summer camp when I was about 12 and seeing a piece of graffiti on the the bunk wall that said, the police don't rule anything. They're only so-so. And somehow I was like, I need to know more about this band. <laughs> um, but I went to go see them, I think in 83, at the Ghost in the Machine tour. 
um, at the Richfield Coliseum in Cleveland, Ohio. And they, uh, the, the go-go's opened for the police. So it was quite a memorable show. Um, less so for my father who took us because he slept through the entire thing. Um, (laughs) (laughs) my dad took me to see poison and, uh, I don't think I've ever seen my dad more annoyed in his life. (laughs) Exactly. My, 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 my first concert I saw was the Rolling Stones in 81, um, at the same Coliseum, which was pretty amazing even at the time. Um, but anyway, I, uh, I saw them again when they toured more recently, you know, in 2007 or whatever that was. And um, that was less exciting in a way. Uh, I felt like they were a little more boring. Um, but I've always, I mean, I've always loved the police. I, I, I deep dive on them every few years. I go back and I re-listen just because I, I just really do um, marvel at the what they pulled off. And but I do feel like they have, um, you know, some of their. I don't think they they're consistent necessarily. Like some of their songs, even on this record, especially on this record, I would say feel like filler to me. Yes, and uh, totally. Um, and I think this, yeah, this one in particular, I think you could tell that they were just like, let's whatever, put this on, and who cares, you know, just fill out the the running time. Um, but the hits are just so undeniable and, and message in the bottle specifically is like one of the absolute great masterpieces of songwriting and production and lyrics and everything. I just, it's, it's certainly one of my all time favorite songs. And as a, as a drummer, my whole life, you know, studying that song and, you know, all the trying to figure out how do they do that? And what's the overdubs with the hi-hats and, you know, it's just such a, an amazing, intricate imaginative beautiful drumline along with everything else so maybe because i'm i'm 41 so i'm 10 years younger than you and i mean like good for you thank you very much thank you it's my parents you know they they waited i mean yeah but i'm what i'm curious is it's like i don't think i could because you said something in there which is like about that like they pulled off something incredible it's it's like i don't think i can capture how big the police were how big were the police you know, at the height of their fame, because to me, it's just like every breath you take and message in a bottle, walking on the moon, everything off the greatest hits. But like, I never could conceive of like, like actually like, were they at one point the biggest band in the world? I mean, I think they were, I mean, I, I wasn't, uh, uh, when they were at their height, I was a kid. So I wasn't like, you know, a journalist or anything, yeah. nor am I now. But I definitely can tell you among my friends in Shaker Heights, Ohio, they were massive. And we had the T-shirts and the posters, and it was a pretty big deal for all of us. And uh, collecting the records and looking at the covers and watching the videos on MTV. And it was um, definitely, and I would say that among all the people I've met in my age group over the course of my life, Quite a few of them would say the police is their favorite band. So what's so what's so cool about them then? Because to me, it's just like it's like punk ska, uh, and that's and I know that's like dumbing it down a little bit. So I don't mean to like if I could see Morty's yeah. like getting pissed off right now, but no, but it's like I like I get the hits, but like you said, there, a lot of this record seems to be a little bit of filler. It is, I think it is, but it does. You know, I, I think there's different kinds of records, and you know, as a kid. I think that when I had this record, I probably played Message in a Bottle and um, Bring on the Night and Walking on the Moon a lot more than the other ones. Yeah. Um, 
and that's fine. You know, I, I think if you're if you can make message in the bottle, you're good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to uh, worry about. You know, it's a, not, I think there's just different kinds of records. Some 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 bands make records that are really a full piece, and that uh, even the lesser songs fit into a, a grand scheme that makes you want to listen to the whole thing over and over. Um, I don't think the police were ever that way, particularly. They they seem to be more song-based to me. To, to, to go with what you're saying, it's I think there is something, you know, really cool about this band. I, I Like you said, the songs that rule, really rule. And then the other ones, you know, I've skipped over a little bit. But that's not saying they're not good songs. It's just like when you have something like Message in a Bottle, yeah, then it just shows you how, like you said, it's filler compared to that. I mean, the, the truth is, though, like... It, it, you can just listen to what Stuart Copeland, the drummer, is doing alone on any of these songs, and you can get so much out of it. You know, he he's, he never relaxes, and there's always something different or interesting. And the more you try to break, you don't have to be a drummer. Just the more you try to break down what he's doing exactly and how he changes it up and where he puts the fills and, where, you know, the way he – and this way that they would take these reggae ideas and put them into a punk uh, rhythm or a punk – feeling song otherwise it's just um to me that is kind of endlessly interesting um while at the same time you know th there are songs that are clearly not thought through as much <laughs> sure sure completely what's up everybody i am finn mckenty host of the punk rock nba podcast part of the sound talent media podcast network my podcast is all about doing what you love for a living and every week i sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that for example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there. Hey there, I am Johnny Christ from Avenge Sevenfold, and I've got a podcast called Drinks with Johnny you're going to want to check out. I sit down with a bunch of different people from all different walks of life, from professional wrestlers to actors, comedians, fighters, musicians, everything in between. I'm just looking to make some friends and have a good time doing it. So if that sounds like something you're into, go check out Drinks with Johnny, streaming everywhere now. Um, this is a great record. Uh, I do think I enjoy Outlandis a little bit more. I love how raw Outlandis is. Uh, yeah. It's got a few. And, and Outlandis has more, is more of a one that I think you could listen to the whole thing over and over. Yes, you know? yes. There's there's not much filler on that. Um, but this is a great record. So, all right, so let's find out the history about it more. Do you, you want to fill us in? Released on October 2nd of 1979 on A&M Records and produced by the band with Nigel Gray, this is the second album by the British-American post-punk, new wave, rock, jazz, and reggae-influenced power trio. And uh, for anyone who doesn't know, the police are Stuart Copeland on drums, percussion, and vocals, Andy Summers on guitar and vocals, and Sting on bass and lead vocals. And Josh already said, you'll remember, we did Synchronicity, which is their last album, and we did Outlandis to Amour, which is their first album. So let me just catch you up where the fellows were going into this one. Only three months after that debut was released, the band was already working on the follow-up. They'd had a couple of modest hits with Roxanne and Can't Stand Losing You in a tour of America. And they'd really found their sound and tightened as a band through that. So uh, 
like their debut, they convinced their record company to let them again go into the small studio Surrey Sound with Nigel Gray, with Nigel Gray engineering and co-producing to keep the costs down and to give them complete artistic control, but also to stick with the formula of a successful first record. In fact, they paid for this record themselves with the profits from their first album. So they were really thinking ahead so they could they were staying ahead of the record company Jive, which is really interesting for them. Um, as the debut took about six months to piece together, they felt confident enough to only book about five weeks to record this one. The band was ready, but almost all of the songs were new. So they were brought in by whoever wrote them, worked on and recorded quickly. Uh, let's see. Sting had really come into his own as a songwriter and four of his five solo compositions on here were the singles. Um, he wasn't as prolific up until this point though. So Stewart also wrote three and two are credited to the whole band. It'd be the last time Sting would come up short in that department. Although they had a few interruptions to go play some gigs and tours, they ended up recording it all in about three non-consecutive weeks and canceled the last two weeks. And like their first album, their manager, Stuart's brother, Miles Copeland, came up with this title as a tongue-in-cheek mock French translation, this time for white reggae, the music they integrated into their sound. <laughs> Which everybody Although, knows, I yeah. hate white reggae. Right. More this, than this anything, is, more than yeah. 311. Yeah. If 311 <laughs> like got caught in the Andes Mountains and had to eat themselves, I would be so happy. I'm sorry. I, right. Didn't we see the movie Alive? But the police sure. is really, yes, white reggae, but it's it, now it's just the police. Yes. It's, right. just, it's their thing. I'm not, right. listen, I'm not, I won't even put the police in the white reggae of Slightly Stupid or Sublime or anything like that. Oh, like right. they're, they're more I, of a punk. They're more of a I punk. I hate those other things too. Yeah, yeah. Thank, oh, see, I knew you like, by the way, thank you for putting that picture of me uh, behind you. Uh, that is. I keep this here. I've kept this here probably for the best 25 years. I keep it here as just an inspiration to, you know, I, I remember when I was in, in, I think in preschool, I knew that I wanted to have a podcast someday counting down albums. And I knew that this would be the thing to look at every day and say, this is going to be what I'm going to do. Oh, you know, what's funny. I, if we go into my other room, I have a shrine to you as well. So and oh, good. because I'm a huge, huge fan of the state and role models and everything. And, and I knew that if I have a picture of you up on my wall, it would push me to to break through the, into the industry and work with incredible comics and one day uh, do a podcast with you. So you see, so it all comes around. Oh my god, so full circle. Sting would sing would call it synchronicity. <laughs> Great callback. Thank you very much, uh, Morty. Finish what you got. Yeah. I keep scrolls of both of you in my mezuzah, just in case anyone was wondering. Oh, it became the first of their four remain of their remaining four albums that all went to number one, starting with this album. Yeah, every one of them. Number uh, one is incredible. It's one of the best uh, rankings you can get. Yeah, that's what I've heard. I've, I'll, I'll, I'll have to take your word for it. Yeah. Uh, it allowed them to go on their first world, to world tour that included concerts in unlikely places like Egypt, Greece, India, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Mexico. Almost all of them filmed if you watch the video. If you Although watch those it. places are not as unlikely to those people who are who live in yeah, those Yeah, they places. live there. That's, yeah. that's just They just don't get them saying they're unlikely destinations for sure. concerts. But like if you live in Taiwan, you're not like, it's so weird to be in Taiwan. <laughs> like, I think they're constantly shocked. That's why they're just, yeah. that's why, yeah, they're just. Like why? Why am I in this foreign country? <laughs> why was I born yeah. here? I, how, how do I speak this language? All these customs. 
This, this is not my beautiful junk. So although they only put out five studio albums in their entire career, they remain one of the most successful, popular, and influential bands and have sold over 75 million records. Good for them. Good God. But how many NFTs have they sold? Ah, not many. Not many. Because the they quit beforehand. But as How much Ether do they have in their wallet? You know, Sting's huge into Dogecoin. Just to let you know, oh, okay. and ethereal, ethereal. I don't even know. I gotta, you know, <laughs> I, I just put all my money in lithium. Come on, lithium! Um, all right, let's dive into this record because it, it really is fantastic, and there's a bunch of songs in here I want to get to. You were even going to talk about the filler. The album opens with "Message in a Bottle," which David, you just said, is one of the greatest songs, uh, possibly ever. I would put it in in one of the. I would say for me. I'd put it in my top 10 if I ever made one, which I may, Ooh. but I'm not, I, I, I wouldn't say it for to you on this podcast because I'd wait to release it as a TikTok. Okay. Yeah. I could see that minute, but yeah. like do like five segments each a minute long. Yeah. Um, so the lonely castaway that finds some comfort in the world, similar feelings is the perfect imagery to start a record that very much deals with isolation and alienation. It follows into a metaphor that aims to explain the pitfalls of being heartbroken and alone. At the end, the protagonist learns that he's not the only lonely person. Uh, with a driving rhythm and a guitar riff that sounds sort of like Blue Oyster Colts' Don't Fear the Reaper, this expertly reintroduced the band and remains perhaps their most perfect song. Uh, this really is uh, extremely special, especially the outro. Uh, JT, play it. song is actually really special to me because uh so david i created this show called the goddamn comedy jam where comics do stand up then they tell a story about a cover song uh yep. and what it means to them and then they sing it and the first show uh how come i've never been invited to this no 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 i actually that what i was going to do at the end was say hey i would love for you to come and play drums uh when we get to do this again at the roxy because just watching oh, your, i love it watching your arm work right there i can tell you're you're top notch. I can play the drums. I can play the drums. Yeah. Well, you know, you know we should you should have you do a drum battle off with Bill Burr. That you know, Steve Agee and Brendan Small, two other comedians, did this show Baked for years, yeah. where they would have comedians come on and play songs, and I I would play the drums and sing songs, and it was the bl a total blast. It's the best. It's the best. But at the first show, because uh, you can imagine how nervous you are doing like the first show. Anytime you do a show in Los Angeles, it's scary. Are people going to come? And I did have Bill Burr on it, but it opened with Matt Bronger doing um, Skulls by the Misfits, and the crowd was sitting, and I could tell they were interested, and it was, and it was you know, well-received to a point. Then Jay Larson, another comic, went up, and he did Message in a Bottle, and he Fucked it up so bad. He was singing the verse during the chorus and the band had to, he was so off like rhythm and key that the band had to follow him. And you look at it, the audience and everybody was like laughing and getting really into it. And then that was the moment. That was the moment where I was just sat back. I was like, yeah, this is going to be huge. Wow. And it was great. So this, so this song, just besides it being incredible, it, it's just, 
you know, it's my whole my whole world changed uh, when when Jay Larson did this live. So I thought when you said fucked it up, that meant that was your way of saying like he did great. Oh man, he like, fucked he, it he up. up. Put some stank <laughs> on it. He did. He, he fucked. But listen, it was garbage. But he man, it was just such a beautiful moment. Um, you know, thoughts on this song of of, uh, of of why you love it so much or. Well, I mean, it's the one song, it's one of the songs that I've studied in different ways over the years and like, just take it apart. Like it's the, the guitar line is a lot more complicated than it seems. Like, it seems like you're just like playing these arpeggiated four chords, but they're, they're set up in a weird way. And, um, I remember it was one of the first songs I heard when I, when I was learning to play the drums and I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? You know, there's just so much uh intricacy and like and then and then just being blown away and then i actually didn't really listen to the lyrics which is common for me until much later in life and then i was like oh there's a whole story here that's amazing as well yeah um and i remember they opened with this song on their 2007 tour that i went to and that was pretty damn exciting to just be sitting in the stadium with many, many thousands of people. And then this sort of envelops the crowd as the start. It was pretty insane. Um, I also, uh, one of the things that I do to waste time online is I make these little videos called what if they sucked, um, where I like to take, uh, a song and just sort of alter it just enough to make it sound like the band really sucks. Um, and so in honor of today, I did that with message in the bottle. If you want to hear. Yes, I would love to. I would, like love, a, I would love to hear here, it. Here it is. Dude, I did a spit take. That was so fucking funny. Ah! Message in the butthole. Oh man, can, can you can you please do that with uh, <laughs> "Bring on the Night" too? Please tell well, me I you've got it. one. <laughs> I did do it with um, uh, "Everything She Does Is Magic." You can see all of this at davidwayne.com. Ah, oh, everybody, go to davidwayne.com. Um, Morty, you got anything else to add to this? Absolutely. So the riff had been written on the road in 1978 under a different melody, but it was modified and the lyrics were written during these recording sessions and it became their first UK number one where it stayed for four weeks prior to the album coming out. Although in the US it only went to number 74. And also, I mean, let's be honest, who cares about the UK? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So 74 America. Yeah. I, I just can't imagine that this wasn't higher in the US. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Um, all right. Regatta de Blanc. Uh, so this band uh, composed this title jam with Sting's vocalizations. It was an example of what they were like live at the time. This actually might be my favorite moment on the entire record. Uh, JT, play it. <laughs> Yeah. 
tracks, dude. All right, you know what? This is labeled as an instrumental. Uh, on, on, like, I was looking at different lyrical sites. Labeled as an instrumental, but he's constantly saying yayo, which I don't know if you guys yeah. know this, is a way uh, people, a lot of people call cocaine yayo, uh, so maybe that's what this is about, considering by the, I don't by know. the, the drive. They're so pure, though, those guys. I mean, you in know, my mind, in my preteen mind. Maybe it's tantric cocaine. To me, though, like the three blonde haired, like young guys, like playing around in the studio, like in there's videos and like just the the camaraderie and that just the pure soul of the police is is this song, like the, the way that they're just singing together and just like it does feel like it's a party or like you're at a at a music festival and everyone's just like having a cheer. I love this song. I love, I love it, it too. Do you, it's, let me ask you both this question, considering, you know, you both kind of like really were there during a lot of this, like if, if, if one of the band members and not sting, but if, I mean, if Stuart or Andy weren't a part of this band, would they be as big as, as, as they, they became, I mean, each one of them seems to fit like a certain, like, like is they're all equally important. Am I right or wrong? In my mind, I think you're basically right. And I do think Andy Summers is often overlooked for how innovative and interesting what he did was. However, as great as his con contribution was, it doesn't really compare to Sting or Stuart Copeland. Stuart Copeland is, you know, considered by many to be the greatest rock drummer of all time, um, or one of the top three at least. Yeah. And Sting is Sting. I mean, you know, so it's it, it, it's hard to their their contributions to the band and to music are transcendent of even the police. It's just you know unquantifiable. I think. Andy Summers was a really great, interesting, new, innovative guitar player in many ways. Um, but so, yeah, they, uh, like like any great trio, they are the trio that you can't really separate it. Yeah. I do a quick barrel roll. I'd say uh, just just because you asked uh, Sting, you know, as we already talked about before, Sting was going to make it happen for himself. He even said to the band, basically, and he said to every journalist that asked him, he was like, I'm using this as my way to get where I need to get, you know, and at some point I might, you know, lose the band over that. Sting always knew it. Yeah. I don't think it would have happened for Sting without the police, because I think what, remember, Andy was 10 years older, so he had had like a serious career and learned and knew a lot. What he brought to the table was a lot of musicianship that a lot of other guys that would have come up about that time with punk rock, whatever, wouldn't have known as much. So they're very fortunate with that. Other than that, I just have to say, I admire you for having come up in garage bands where the bands that we had to play, because I'm the same age as you, were like Neil Peart and Stuart Copeland. Right. <laughs> it was like singers and drummers in the in the 80s who tried to be in garage bands. My testicles almost fell off as a singer <laughs> of what they asked me to sing. And the drummers were killing themselves. Luckily, I had no that. problem butchering all of it and it just to get through it. <laughs> all right. Well, I wanted to ask you this, David. Uh, so like the title's translation, uh, what is something people get wrong about you? What is something people get wrong about me? Um I would say that sometimes, well, you know, sometimes people will say something like, I mean, I, I don't think it, I, I've, I've people sometimes come up to me and they say, oh, 
I saw you in that movie Role Models. You played the guitar in that one scene in the in the camping trip. That's so cool. How did you get involved in that? And how did you get that part? <laughs> and I was like, well, I cast myself because I was the writer and director of it. And they're like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> um, but um, I don't know. I think a lot of people think of me as mainly like a sex symbol, or just it's you know they they think of me as like oh, just he's a he's a set of abs, you know with nothing else upstairs but i think people should know that i also i have a brain and i have thoughts yeah. and i have feelings yeah. and dreams yeah god just perfect just perfect yeah morty is there anything you want to add to this absolutely so this originally started as a live extended jam that was in the middle of can't stand losing you from the first album um they would have to extend their sets because all the songs they knew took like nine minutes because at the time people were playing punk and if stuart was really on they would go even quicker on stage. Nice. So they basically extended this entire middle section. And then for this album, because once again, they were a little lacking in, in a uh, material. They just went, fuck it. Let's just put that jam that we always do in the middle. So glad they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's two, fantastic. Two things that come to mind about their tour. What one was that um, the, I couldn't believe considering how intricate the drum lines are that Stuart Copeland plays them faster live. Like th- that's just insane to me. Um, and the second thing was, I, I don't know if this is true. You probably know. I remember hearing that, you know, they really were in many ways an equal trio through their album making time. And then when they had the reunion tour, it was entirely like, okay, this is Sting's operation. Do whatever he says. And that's that, or just, or we're not going to do it. And, and that, and Ed, the other two were like, yep, sure, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I think Sting, Sting definitely, I mean, listen, he's the most successful. He really didn't need to do the police tour. I'm glad I went to that too. I, I'm glad he did it because it was a culmination. You're saying as a solo artist, you think Sting is the most successful of the three? Oh, absolutely. I, I, okay. I mean, yeah. Heard I mean, that as a photographer, song, David? I mean, <laughs> yeah. come on, dude. I think it's very, it's very debatable who of the three has the, been, been the most successful. That is true. That is true. All the girls I know love Stuart. Yeah. <laughs> I'm team Andy. <laughs> Although this wasn't a single, here's the funny thing about it. This is like a throwaway thing. This won them their first Grammy. This was for best rock instrumental performance, and not even as a single. So that shows you like sort of like how they're cast off, how they're just an afterthought of what they put on stage to fill time. They're just castaways. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal the Man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. 
All right. Uh, all right. Maybe I think this next one, track three, might. I kind of consider it a little bit of filler. Uh, it's all right for you. It's not a bad song. Uh, Morty picked this out, and I, and I do agree with this. Lyrically, this reminds uh, us of a song. Uh, go ahead and uh, play it, JT. Uh, this is almost like a new wave uh, Bob Dylan subterranean homesick blues, you know? Just lyrically, it's like, ski bottom d sam do lam pi tan do bad ski Also, what's that other song where it's like, it's all right, my mama. I'm singing Wild Wild West, too. Wow, yeah. I just realized Wild Wild Same West thing. just bit off of subterranean homesick blues. Pump it up by Albus Costello. I've always wondered, what does he mean? Limp wrist, tight fist, contact, no twist, black dress, no mess. You know, it's obviously gobbledygook, (laughs) but I like it. It's very gobbledygook. Uh, But I wanted to ask you this. I wanted to ask you this, though. When did you first feel like you would do all right in the business? Well, it really depends on what you mean by all right. I, I knew that, uh, you know, we I had a lot of luck very early on right out of college because our my sketch comedy troupe from college got a TV show on MTV and that was insane. And we knew at the time how lucky and special that experience was. And so in my early twenties, I remember saying to Ken Marino very vividly, like if, if this is all we ever do, it's been still quite an amazing ride, you know? And, um, but I never felt, and still don't feel like secure in the future. It's just not really the nature of what we do so much. Um, and I certainly had a lot of struggles in my late 20s through my early 30s in terms of wondering if I can do this and wondering if I can survive, uh, support myself. And I guess maybe somewhere in my mid-30s, I had enough work in a row that happened that I felt like, okay... I'm secure enough to know that I could probably keep doing this in some form throughout my my productive years. Um, so I guess you know around, around the time that we did that Stella show on Comedy Central, and then I after that made this movie, The Ten, and you know, I just like started working more consistently. Um, did my first studio movie right after that, and uh, but I, I I've been busy and consistently working in a certain way since then, but not. Um, not necessarily always making money or a lot of money. And, you know, it's all, it's always a question of what's next. So, but when you were doing the stakes, I remember talking to Carrie about it and her saying that, like, I think it was for the second season, uh, you guys, for your promo ad, you used all of the negative reviews. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, was there a moment while you were doing the state, you're like, yeah, this, this might be it because. Oh, for sure. All, all the moments. I mean, we, <laughs> it, it was, we never, it was never clear, although I think what fueled us and got us through that was the 11 of us were such close friends and such big sort of cheerleaders of each other that, and we had a, so as a group, we had such a cocksure attitude about who we were and a, a very inflated attitude that served us a lot. And we just thought we were the best thing that's ever happened and the funniest people on earth. And when uh, an MTV executive or anyone tried to question that, we were just like, fuck you, you know, and so... <laughs> It kind of worked because, you know, the emperor's new clothes, it, it sort of served us and, and I think helped us to stay with it when we had some real hits, like like when we, when I say hits in the negative sense, like we 
tried to do a special on CBS after we left MTV and it tanked horribly and there was a scandal around it. And so, and so it just felt like, you know, we just kept believing in ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's move on to bring on the night. Uh, this is a very special song to me. Uh, so by the way, uh, sting, uh, cribbed the line, the evening spreads itself against the sky from T.S. Eliot. Uh, let me remind you what T.S. Eliot had to say about poets. Immature poets imitate, uh, mature poets steal, bad poets deface what they take, and good poets make it into something better or at least something different. Uh, hmm. Do you agree with that? I do. I fully agree with that. But I'm just disappointed to hear that he didn't write those lines because i love that yeah. the, the evening spreads itself across the sky yeah He's a, what a thief what a thief um here play the verse uh jt This this might be, uh, I think, one of the most underrated police songs out there. I, I don't. I think- agree, and I'm I'm starting to question my own whole feeling about this whole record now because so far I'm like four for four anyway. Yeah, but it's like this was this was one that I don't even know how I stumbled upon it uh, a while ago, and I remember becoming like obsessed with it. And it's like, wow, it's like why wasn't this big? Like this is, I think this is up there with any of their hits. Um, yeah, it's a great song. Uh, I think the real fans, though, know this is way better than every breath you take. I mean, if you were going to play the police for somebody that's never heard of them, I would put this on because it kind of merges everything. It's, you know, maybe not so much the punk aspect, but definitely the the reggae. And you can also see where Sting was probably going to go from this song. Yeah, well, it definitely sounds like Sting solo yes. uh, a lot, that that sort of soaring vocals over the thing and the, the Caribbean influence and all that. If I'm not mistaken, Morty, if you want to, I know you, well, didn't he do, like, put out, like, a DVD and name it Bring on the Night? Yeah, Bring on the Night was his uh, first, it was his live DVD that he put out after, you know, after the police. It was sort of the first thing anybody saw, Dream of the Blue Turtles live was called Bring on the Night, and it had the making of, the dream of the blue turtles his first album you know when when records were the only way to listen to music a lot of times the first side sometimes was the packed with all the good stuff and then you flip it over and you hear all the filler yeah and this i'm wondering if maybe this is going to turn out to be more like that sure moments um, all right, so I want to I wanted to ask you about. I know we're you know, speaking of the dark, uh, but with the recent losses of uh, Tony Hendra and Annie Beats, yeah, uh, I'm reminded of your movie uh, A Futile and Stupid Gesture uh, about right. doomed National Lampoon co-founder Doug Kenny, in which Tony and Anne are supporting characters. And you mentioned the state earlier in the cast of characters, and it was an incredible roster of talent uh, that rivals, I think, any sketch group dynasty ever uh so if you had to kill one of them to ensure your lasting legacy who would it be michael ian black yeah i knew that was gonna happen i told him i said i bet you <laughs> you know it's funny I, I just feel like he doesn't bring a lot of value to the world and so it's fine 
I actually, just in, I, in the cosmic scheme of things. I actually had, uh, I was going through an existential breakthrough slash crisis in the summer of 2018. I was at uh, Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. And in the hotel, I ran into him. I was talking to somebody else about existence. And I had like a half hour conversation with him about very like Eckhart Tolle-esque uh, mm-hmm. stuff and and it was it was funny because he was kind of in a hurry and then he heard me talking about it and then he jumped in and it's like I've never met him before I don't know the guy and uh I mean we we got pretty deep dude so I mean yeah and, and he's an incredible guy and he he actually wrote um this book this year I don't know if you read it about um manhood which is just incredible like it's a beautiful book that I feel like every man woman and child should read oh wow um, um, it's, uh, he's, he's a great, uh, he's been, a you know, as most people say, who are your big influences or your mentors in life? And truthfully, they were my friends. Um, and that for better or worse is how I formed. And so, and, but this, uh, book, uh, this last one is really quite something it's called a better man, better man. All right. I'll definitely check it out. Uh, Morty, is there anything you want to add? Yeah. Speaking of killing the chosen one. Uh, Sting originally wrote this song as Carrion Prince, O Ye of Little Hope, for his uh, jazz band before this last exit. So and he wrote it from the from the point of view of Pontius Pilate. And uh, then he read Norman Mailer's book, The Executioner's Song, which if you guys know is about Gary Gilmore, the jailed criminal and murderer who famously fought in court for the death penalty for himself. And he was eventually executed by a firing squad in 1977. And so Sting read that and changed the point of view to that of Gary Gilmore, which is a perfect segue into the next song, should you choose to take it. Death Wish. Uh, I want to mention it. I, I think it's kind of filler-esque. Um, very filler-esque. Very filler-esque. But, Morty, you pointed this out to me when we were talking. He's got the Bo Diddley world beat in full effect. Uh, kick it with the with the Bo Diddley world beat, JT. Dude, I'm I'm so glad I know about the Bo Diddley sound now. It's like I can hear it anytime it's played in any song. It's so incredible. So undeniable. Yeah, it's a great song. But I want to spend more time on track six, Walking on the Moon. So uh, this is their second UK number one. And in my opinion, is the best song on the record. (gasps) That's what I think. Uh, I know, I know. JT, play a little taste. Walking on the moon. I'm wishing my days away. No way. I get the surprise. I mean, this is this is great. It, it's just those little clashes, the drums that like. It's just everything. The melody. It's just such a perfect song. Like, whereas Message in a Bottle is great, too. I'm going to take a way other side to this, which I hope will make the conversation interesting. Not my favorite. Really? Don't hate it, but, like, it to me, it represents, you know, that sort of, like, heavily chorused light guitar line, like, is a harbinger of, like, later police stuff where I feel like, I don't like that, like uh, that sort of um, there's something about it that feels mushy to me. And then I also 
that the sort of jaunty it reminds me also of um some of their other later songs that i just it's not i don't hate it but it's just i've always sort of been like eh. <laughs> no i no, i totally get that i mean it was because like how big was this song when it came out because obviously it went to number one in the uk did, did it morty do you know where it placed in america well the thing was about the police is they didn't really break in america until the next album zenyata mandata which has the do 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 and don't stand so close to me that's right and then so up until that point even guys like us like david david and me these songs were sort of out there you know on on radio like college radio like whatever would have been the equivalent but when Zenyatta popped it was then like the went back. yeah it was like the Smiths they had two incredible records where we were like shit I know Roxanne like Eddie Murphy singing it in in 48, 48 hours, hours was like it was like one of those weird things like how did he pick that song and know that that would be a lasting artist that many years later you know it was so just a random good. that's probably yeah, how it was yeah. a random British band that had like this one I mean now we think of it as the, him singing the police but in the early 80s, he just picked this, you know, so when when Zenyatta came out and the MTV was really featuring them because, I mean, Sting's gorgeous. And they had, you know, these three very interesting things. People were like, oh, crap, they've got two other albums and look at all these hit songs. So, you know, that was that was when in America. And to me, instantly, then, and then and then Ghost in the Machine even more so like that yeah. was when it was like it was, that was their unforgettable fire. That was their like, just like boom. Yeah. Exploded beyond explosion. What's on? Yeah. What's on? Ghost in the Machine. Oh, uh, spirits in the material world. Uh, every little thing she does is magic. Ah, yeah, yeah. dude. Invisible Sun. Ooh. I mean, I think everything she does is definitely in their top two or three for me of all times. And then Spirits of the Material World is also one of my very right. favorites. And I'm always just, you know, that's the one you could listen to over and over and just. Like, Can you find the one every time? Do you have any trouble finding no, the one at the beginning? It's, I've, I, it's not easy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so a little interesting fact about this. Sting wrote this in Munich after a night drinking schnapps with German experimental composer, I'm going to fuck this name up, Eberhard Schoner, with whom the band played. The riff came to him back at his hotel, so he put the words walking around the room to it. When he woke up, he wrote it down and changed the lyric. I love that. It alludes to both the airless and weightless feelings of love as well as more isolation during long stretches on the road. Um, do you ever have those, David? Do you ever, what's the most isolated you felt besides, you know, the COVID? Yeah, I mean, that was the that was the real one, right? Yeah. Um, I feel like uh, I feel different types of isolation all the time. Sometimes when... Uh, when you're working as a director on a movie or something, you're, there's a certain isolation of being the only one doing what you're doing. Like, you know, everyone's looking to you for um, guidance and decisions all day. And then you realize that there's nobody else there who's doing that. And, and you're, it's this weird dichotomy of being um, extremely interactive and social in a way all day long with the millions of people but then you go home and you're like, okay, I guess uh, it's just me now having to figure this out. I don't know. There's something very interesting uh, there. And then also this year was so, was crazy where you, like we did some big Zoom events this year. Um, some, um, I was involved in a number of online events and you have this incredible kind of celebratory, amazing uh, experience, whether we did this state thing, we did this Wet Hot American Summer related thing. And then you turn off your computer and you're like, oh, I'm still here alone in my house. Okay. 
which is so, I mean, I'm sure we all went through that, but yeah, it's interesting. Hmm. Uh, more, do you want to add anything to this? Yeah. Just when they made some money with Roxanne, they bought some uh, Roland RE201 space echo units. That's the stuff that you really hear on this song that Stuart's mm. playing off of and that Andy's playing off of. Um, inspired by reggae dub, you know, dub music, Stuart and Andy use these things to get those repeating delays Love and that. to give it that spacey and sort of unsettling sound. You know, David might be responding to that or the chorus effect because those are the two things that Andy used a lot. Although that that sound that he makes on everything he does is magic on the rim shot. I believe I've seen him do that live manually, even though it sounds like a echo delay box. He did that. He actually used this live. He would trigger mm. it with his feet. So Stuart was during this time would trigger it with his feet to give these echo things. And if you've ever seen it, you can find all this footage is on YouTube. You can find like Stuart playing off himself because it's not the beat right before that gets repeated. It's the one before that. So there's this intricate polyrhythmic stuff, but this is, this is why we're in the weeds. I'd love to give out for the people listening out there. I'd love to just give out the, the URL for that. Cause I happen to know it by heart. It's www.youtube.com. <laughs> Fantastic. Is there, is there like a documentary about the police that, that yeah, you guys, two of them. That, Does everyone stare? There's one called, Does everyone stare? Uh-huh. That uh, I can't remember if that's the one that Stuart did. Uh, Truth Hits Everybody, I think, is the other one, if I'm not mistaken. But Stuart did one because Stuart filmed everything. Yeah, he was a big archivist, wasn't yeah. he? He yeah. would go around with like a his Super 8. So he filmed them. It's if you guys like the police or even sort of like Sting, it's fascinating to watch them come up and everything backstage. And remember, like I said, all those places where, you know, exotic people aren't exotic to themselves. He filmed everything. So he was there for all of it. So it's really amazing to see. He got there's he's got video yeah. of uh, of Sting doing his first eight hour tantric sex session, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good for him. He told he him to go out, fuck he, himself, and then he did. Didn't Stewart put out a photo book too? I think of of touring and stuff, which was pretty yeah, cool. Andy, Andy, Andy had oh, Andy. Stuart, yeah, Andy was a photographer. And uh, um, Stewart also has this bizarre uh, YouTube channel, which has just some oddball, random stuff on it. And yeah. that's at oh, but YouTube.com. Yeah. Oh yeah! Once again, just for those, if you're writing it down, if you got a pencil, it's www.youtube.com, yes. and you can just go on internet whether whether it's Explorer or Netscape, whatever you got, Google Chrome, whatever you want to use. Yeah. Um. All right. Uh. I want to talk about on any other day, uh, because I don't know how I feel about this one. Oh. Uh. Wait, more. Why are you getting? What <laughs> about the other ones? Are complete bullshit. This so all right so so Stewart sings his first one on here and his only solo vocal on a police record. It's about a crummy day of crumbling domestic bliss in suburbia with the same kind of humor he brought to his other songs. Uh just JT play the part. So this is cheese, man. This is straight up cheese. And this is when I hear about how popular the police were, I hear something like this. And it makes me wonder, did everyone hear this song? You know, I think especially at that time in rock and roll, you know, you have these albums coming out and there's often like one of these goof off songs on the record just to fill it up and, and this was a classic to me, like, yeah, let the drummer do whatever the fuck, you know, and, and it's, yeah, it's 
trash. So is this it, like? It, so let me ask you this: uh, Is this kind of like Octopus's Garden for Ringo? It's just like you know, whereas like even less though, so, yeah, you know, because well, Ringo always dropped these cheesy songs where it's like they wrote you know, those. For I'd him. like to be, and which I don't hate, but you know, on fucking I think, Abbey yeah, Road. I, I, I think Morty points out the right thing. Like those were Beatles written songs for Ringo to do because they were sort of in that persona for him. But this is really like uh, Stuart wants to make this dumb <laughs> thing and just go ahead, whatever you know. We'll we'll, we'll go to lunch. It's just so <laughs> and I. It's so yeah. confusing because like when you have Walking on the Moon and Message in the Bottle, and then you have this on the record, it's just very confusing. But I think they didn't have enough. They had to yeah. like, they, they definitely had to find more stuff to fill up this record. And this, and I, I can't imagine. I just am guessing that Sting was like, I guess, whatever. You know, it just, <laughs> it doesn't quite fit in. And um, like, do you remember? Uh, I mean, I loved the Jay Giles band, um, and they had that album Love Stinks. And there's the song No Anchovies, Please, which is basically a skit. You know, yeah. Um, which I actually love that one, but it's, um, yeah, there's always just this one or two on some of these records where they're just like, let's goof around and who cares? And people still buy the record, which is true. It's just I'll get into true. a little later about Stuart's stuff, but remember Stuart's brother is the manager. Basically right. Stuart helps put the, the band together and he's like, you know, he's the driving energy force that's the closest, really he's the thing that ties them to punk rock. I mean, there's like Sting's anger looking issue and all that stuff. But Stuart's energy is the thing that made them comp, you know, made them sort of comparable to other bands they might play with at the time that were punk rock because he yeah. brought so much unbridled energy. And so when you heard his stuff, you know, nobody knew Walking on the Moon and Message in a Bottle. Nobody knew that those would be around for 40 years. You know what I mean? Like they were, you know, when they came out, it was like, oh, yeah, that's one of the songs on the album. And this is one of the songs on the album. So it's definitely not, if you grew up with this, it's like an endearing song to you because it's so out there. And just to hear Sting singing backup on this is hysterical. I don't, I don't hate it. Like after hearing you guys talk about it, I'm like, it's not, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not saying it should kick off. (laughs) And she did this thing and it's over there. It's just, it's It's another uh, white boy reggae band, which I don't know if you like or not. Josh is uh, sublime. It kind of reminds me of, they sing about their dog. I hate sublime. I hate sublime. I never understood why people like them. All my friends in high school loved them. And I just, yeah, man, that's huge. It yeah. does. It does sort of echo, though, the lyrics to Synchronicity too a little bit. You know, absolutely. It's a suburban Sunday morning. All that. Yeah, stuff. Stuart. Look at Sting ripping off Stuart. How's right. that for you? Ooh. Yeah, but I just don't think this one ages well. No, it does it, not. It, yeah. it definitely does not. I. Right. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast. A songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of the Beths and Genesis Owusu. 
We've had guests from all genres and styles of music. And I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. So I want to ask you this because this is a really interesting question. What was your best worst day? So a day that started bad but got really good. Oh, started bad, they got really good. I like how you you start by saying, "Here, I, this is a really interesting question <laughs> that I'm going to about to say. <laughs> um <laughs> day that started bad and got really good uh why, you, you know and then you, you put even extra pressure on me by saying it's a really interesting question it makes me feel like i have to well it's a um, terrible answer but it's an incredible yeah, question. I mean, the, the question's good the question so i stand behind yeah. the question yeah. the questions are, guess, are solid i guess i would say a, a time a day that starts bad and good good maybe have been when i had a a health scare or something and then found out it wasn't true, you know, it's a good one. Yeah. Or, or my kid, my child had something wrong or, you know, they're like, Oh, we had to take a test and you find out, Oh, it's fine. That would be, I guess the best kind of ending to a very hard day. That's a perfect that answer. Yeah. That's a perfect answer. Anything with kids gets me. Yeah, so that's, dude. that be yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, listen, I stand behind my questions. We stand behind it. These are, these are legit questions. Carrie killed it. Carrie was like her best worst day was fucking. What was it? Uh, so she, she uh, her stomach hurt and and then she had to go into an audition and then she fucking nailed it. Oh, but there was more details and things like that around it and humor. You know what I mean? Didn't mention. Kids. I definitely had. Um, I'll tell. Okay, I'll tell uh, one of one of the best worst. There we go. The, one time. Right at one of those moments that I was talking about where I was really unsure of whether my career was what was going to happen, I had an opportunity to pitch myself to direct a big movie, which I, you know, would have been a a career defining job and also really needed in every way at that time. This is many, many years ago. And so I was living in New York and I had been working with the production company to put together this whole like book about how I'm going to direct the movie. And you know, I had spent quite a long time uh, collecting and creating storyboards and uh, writing an essay and f- music and blah, 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 blah. And I, and I went to this, I flew myself to LA on a plane and I rented a car and I went to the studio and I'm walking up the lawn to the studio lot to the office of the executives to pitch my thing. I'm very nervous and I've been rehearsing and rehearsing and I get a call from the agent as I'm approaching, saying, oh, don't, the meeting's canceled. They already gave the job to somebody else. And I was like, okay. So this 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 became like the worst day. And then I sat in my rental car. You know, I, I was a stranger in Los Angeles at the time. I'm like, I can't, I just can't believe this. But I looked at myself in the mirror and I realized at that moment, this is, I'm not going to quit because this is what I want to do and this is what I do. And realizing that I wasn't going to quit when that happens made me realize I'm never going to quit and that it's all going to be fine. And it suddenly became like a gloriously very, very happy moment and a very liberating day. Nice. nice. And then the doctor called you and said it was benign. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's the perfect button. If not benign, then be 10 or be 11. <laughs> I will say that you weren't the right choice for Lord of the Rings. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not, not, I, I prefer role models, to be totally honest with you. The uh, the movie was Boys in the Hood. <laughs> I can yeah, see that. Like you, yeah, they, dude. I could definitely I was see wrong that. for it. We have a different direction we want to go. All right. So so then they, they have this cheese song on any other day, and then they come back and they drop a song like The Bed's Too Big Without You. Uh, JT, play it. I mean, it, it, see, this is this is the police I like. This, you, you have the cheese ball McGee, and then you go into this. And, you know, or we'd call that other song maybe a little bit of filler. Like, this one actually showcases why the band is great. Uh, you could hear Sting's voice with that note, which is just incredible. The fucking, uh, what would you call those arpeggiated drums or... I mean, I don't know the actual term of how yeah, like he's pl- syncopated drums. Yeah, but it, it's yeah. it just like the 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 hits. It's just it's just a great, great song. Uh, and this was their fourth and final single from the album. It deals with loneliness and heartache after a failed relationship. Uh, the song's lyric. I, I also think that th- this is a, a one of many examples of Sting's bass lines that are so cool yes. and so uh, restrained in a certain way. You know, they come in and out the way they do, and it's and I I think like. Uh, like a lot of musicians I love, if Sting was not Sting, he would be known as a great bass player. Like, yeah, oh, the, for sure. The, for sure. One of the great rock, more innovative rock bass players. Um, so much going on. So interesting. So not what the obvious choice is uh, all the time. And I love that about his, his playing. Well, actually, I, I, Morty, I'm going to take this because the this is like, inspired lyrically by an incident uh, in which Sting's first girlfriend, after being heartbroken upon their breakup, committed suicide. So this is like a heavy song, you know, for them. And I, it's like you, you must listen to that and you don't even realize like the what's behind it and how heavy this is. Um, but it's great, man. Great song. Um, more, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, that the thing you're talking about, that bass line, this was another song that was originally in Last Exit, his jazz band. And so likely it didn't have that sort of reggae bass thing because there's always talk about how Stuart kind of showed Sting where to put the bass, like on Roxanne. Yeah. Do you do, do you do, playing in between the beats where normally, you know, a bass player would probably play on the do, 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 you know? And so... This I I don't know that this song would have been what we got to hear today, if it had still stayed sort of in that jazz way. Right. But uh, a cover of this uh, in 1981. A lot of people who are fans of this don't even know this is a Police song, because a cover of this by reggae artist Sheila Hilton uh, became a UK top 40 hit. It went to 35 in 81. So there are still people out there that are familiar with her version of this. Hmm. What song though went to 81 in 35? I'm curious. Uh, I believe it was uh, Putting on the Ritz by Taco. Thank you. Nice. Yeah. All right. uh, The next one, Contact. Uh, Is this filler, guys? Is it filler? Moment. Yeah. A bit of of that. Uh, I like the lyrics. Well, here. Play 21 seconds in.
See, I, all right, see, I like that part we just played, but that, I mean, that's, it's all right. I mean, it's, it's filler, but it's still fun. I mean, like, that's the, like, there's, there's so much to listen to and to kind of get out of it. Even it is, it is definitely one of the lesser songs, but there's always, it's, especially when you play those little segments, you're like, oh, that's cool. That rocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Morty, is there anything you want to add about this one? I mean, just, you know, it's another alienation song, you know, not having meaningful connection. This is a Stuart song, but Sting yeah. sings this one. So, you know, Sting was uh, open to sort of interpreting his songs if, unless he found them objectionable, which I'll get to when he was like, nah, nah, I'm not doing that one. Then, then it would like, that's why, you know, Stuart does on any other day. But uh, other than that, the raincoat that they talk about is either, you know, a literal raincoat or most people have, you know, have considered it to be a condom, you know, did and what keep writing songs over or did, did sting kind of take over hundred percent at a certain point? Uh, he always had, uh, Miss Gridanko on synchronicity is a Stuart song. Okay. And so, and then, uh, rehumanize yourself, I believe is a, I think rehumanize yourself on ghost in the machine is a, is a Stuart song with the, she's, he's got his hands in the air with the other cunts. That seems like something that Stuart, that Stuart would write, <laughs> but yeah, there's like, so yeah, he's got, he he would keep writing stuff, but they also knew Andy and Stuart were, were, I mean, yeah, Andy and Stuart were really smart by saying, yo, this dude wrote, this guy's writing great songs. I'm not fighting Let to get my it. song yeah. on the record. Yeah. You know, he, they, a, a big part of being successful in anything is knowing when somebody is talented and not getting in their way just so that you can have your voice heard. So I, I think that's really impressive. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, where are we at? All right. Does everyone stare? So this is the third and final Stuart Copeland written track on here. And it began as a piano piece he wrote in college. It captures the turmoil of being in a relationship that's uneven in power and likely doomed. Uh, best part of the song is this. Go ahead and play it. Yeah, see, this isn't this this isn't filler at all. I mean, it's like no, I have a lot of affection for this song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do really enjoy this one. Uh, Morty, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, this is another one of those. If you listen to the intro of the song, we didn't play it, but it starts off with Stuart singing and playing the piano. It was a demo that he did, and then right as it's fading, because it's really cool, it starts with his demo, and then as it's phased, this opera thing comes in and it was just some radio broadcast that somehow got recorded but if you ever listen to the way the transition happens it's like this it's like one of those beetle moments where they like on i am the walrus it just comes in and you go oh my god yeah like the, one of the craziest happy accidents once again synchronicity nice that was synchronicity too Ooh! all right i want to talk about the final song on the record because uh it, this is just like jt play the last 30 seconds because uh stewart just goes the fuck off dude <laughs> Most bands would start with. 
you know? Yeah. This is, it's a great song, a great way to end the record. Uh, just phenomenal. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm changing my whole tone about the whole record. I think there's very little filler now that I think about hmm. it. This usually happens on this podcast. People will come in yeah. with one with one idea, and then we start going through track by track. And you're like, actually, that's pretty this good. podcast is transformative. Ooh, very transformative. Thank you, um, Morty. Anything to add? Yeah. The last thing about this is once again needing more material. This was actually originally recorded for Atlantis Demore during those sessions. This a version of this was the B side of So Lonely. Uh, the year before, but they re-recorded it for this because once again, they needed more material. So this has, I mean, those playouts, like that's, if you're a fan of this band amongst like fans, you turn it up all the way to hear like his last two fills. Yeah. Cause they're like, it's like Elvis Costello on blood and chocolate. It's one of those things where if you just crank it, you can hear those last. I'm just like, what did he play after that? It's all I want to know. I, like, you know what? It's like short. this is the oh. one thing that that listening to these three police records has done for me is really make me realize how incredible Stewart is. Like I, yeah. I always just thought he was this dude that just held the drumsticks, kind of like you know Max Weinberg, you know. But he's but he's really this incredible drummer. I mean, he's like he's. I think he might be the most important person in this band. You know what? Fuck Sting. It's about Stewart. Fuck that motherfucker. Fuck him. Yeah. <laughs> Um, for you know, hours. The, way, the way he holds the drumsticks and Max Weinberg is called the standard grip. Oh, wow. Because it is the standard way to play to hold drums. Yeah, but it's always, Just it's kind of like the, it's kind of, it's kind of cheesy. You know what I mean? I like the, I like the Tommy it's Lee, weird like from, finger. For those like, like in rock and roll who play with a matched grip and you're just like, it seems like more intuitive, but it really is the proper way most people would say to play the drums is with that weird other hand thing going. Yeah, but did yeah. he did he ever play the drums upside down wearing a leather jock strap like Tommy Lee? No. Okay. And that's a very, very good point. Yes, thank you. All right, let's do some facts and then we'll get out of here, okay? All right, so this album did so well that in early 1980, the record company reissued the 1978 single So Lonely, I love that song, that originally flopped and it went to number six on the UK chart. Can I just interrupt and say they it would have sounded the same if the song was called Soul Only. You're 100% right. Soul Only. Thank you. I, it was important. Soul Only. Soul Only. Soul Only. Soul Only. Um, um, anyway, that was important, but now you can continue. Well, I want to ask you this, because it's fair to make a similar comparison to how long it took Wet Hot American Summer to become a cult film and, yes. you know, like, and spawn a successful franchise. I mean... Did you have any idea, like, because it was like I remember Wet Hot American Summer came out in what year? It was like two thousand and two thousand one. Two thousand and one, and it's I feel like I remember being in my my college dorm and and somebody showing me that and and being completely blown away. And then you didn't get to do it again until two thousand and fourteen, fifteen, in there. Yeah. So like, so can you give me a little like backstory of how that suddenly grew from that into that? I mean, it was, you know, it, it started with us not getting anybody to be able, we couldn't finance it for years. And we, we, we believed in this script we wrote and took three long years to find two cents to, to shoot it. And um, even then we thought, who did we fool? How did we get this going? And then we made this movie and um, didn't sell it. We took it to Sundance and nobody bought it. And it was just, it seemed like, We'd be lucky if it came out on a DVD or whatever at the time. 
And my only goal was if it got released in one theater in New York, then we knew the New York Times would review it. And that's that was that was the bar. Uh, I was just like, I just want I wanted to come out on in one theater so it gets a review. And then I wanted to at some point come out on DVD so that people who want to see it can see it. Um, and it had this sort of little pitter pat release. It, it made no money. It lost all the money for the investors. And then um, the DVD came out a, many months later and, and very slowly, but surely starting then people started being like, Oh, what is this? And passing it around and having a certain proprietary ownership over it because it was so unknown at first. And people were like, Oh, look at this, check this out, check this out. And, slowly, slowly, slowly over time. I mean, the movie finally um, hit its profit point in 2007. Wow. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's been this insane calling card for my whole career. It's just uh, very gratefully so. It's it's It was a, it, it turned out to be this perfect storm of a special moment and group of people and something that worked in a certain way. And um, it was a joy to go back and do more of it um, on Netflix. Uh, I mean, what what and, a cast! Because yeah. it's not even just like you know the state people, but it's like I mean Bradley Cooper and and then yeah, uh, Rudd, and, and, Elizabeth Banks, Paul Rudd. Paul, Rudd I, I mean, it's just yeah. Maloney, Molly Shannon. So I have to yeah. I have to ask you this: whose idea or who wrote it in the script uh, when they went into town for them to shoot heroin? Um, <laughs> it really was. I mean, I'm not saying this to be. Um, Diplomatic. We, Michael Showalter and I really sat together and wrote the whole thing together. Yeah. And so I couldn't even tell you who said, like, let's do that, because we really were very much in a synced brain at that time. And every all, many of the ideas we had just seemed obvious to us. At the, at the, we were like, then they got to do this. Yeah, of course. You know, and um, it started just from us trading our own real summer camp stories back and forth and then just shaping them into some kind of narrative. So, so so when you went into town at summer camp, you, you shot dope. Well, it was, <laughs> it was inspired by the fact that when you had time, when you were a camp counselor, having time off to go into town was like the most incredible thing because you, when you're at summer camp, you're eating crappy food in the dining hall and you have a very limited life, you know, and you, you, you don't get, so just the idea of going into like an air conditioned store is like so exciting for yeah. <laughs> to be able to like go into a town and buy a snack, uh, you know, whatever you go to McDonald's and get French fries it was like, Oh my God. It's like, we, it really did feel that heightened thing. So that, that actually is what that, that montage is. It's is brilliant. It is by. that. I mean, the movie was great up until that point, but when that part hit, I, I was like, "This is the this is the shit, dude." It's it's so brilliant. Oh, thanks, so, man. So, and thank you for keep for keeping the the franchise alive because it was a really exciting. It was really exciting to see that come out uh, on, on Netflix. Um, by the way, I was at Sundance in two thousand. I was at that Sundance. Really, and, and I heard somebody came to my room and they go. I just saw the funniest fucking movie. It's like a summer camp. Like they described it like, it you know, like, like my left like a foot make of like meatballs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But they were like, it's like meatballs and animal house, but update like, you know, but like our humor now. Yeah. You know, and they were like, I mean, really raving about it. And then I couldn't find it because she couldn't remember the name of it. And yeah. I couldn't find it. And I waited until something came on and I was like, that's, that's what she was talking about. I was like, that's the movie. So yeah, it's it. I always wondered about people like like people that look at a movie and go, 
is this going to be huge or are we going to sit around and then in five years, this is going to be the Rocky Horror Picture Show? Like, yeah. I wonder if you can, you know what I mean? If you're like, hold I on. I feel like so much of the stuff that yeah. I've done has been the latter, you know, where people don't, uh, we did another one uh, called They Came Together, which again, on release was a non-event in every way. But then over the last five years has started to, people start talking about it and becoming more and more of a classic for many people. So, you know? so basically That's you make fantastic. something, you make something handed to the studio and go, just wait. Yeah. <laughs> just wait. And then years, somebody maybe. will make, but you know, somebody will make money, not me at some point <laughs> later. He pulls the pin and he goes, hold on to this for six years. Yeah. Not really a great business, not a great business right. model, no, but, but dude, it's, <laughs> it's, it works, dude. And that's, if that keeps working for you, keep doing it. Uh, yeah. Morty, you got a fact? Yeah, here we go. So we're going to take you back to the Stuart. Now, this is the thing about the Stuart Copeland vocal and stuff. At Between 78 and 80, he had an EP and a bunch of singles out under the pseudonym Clark Kent. That's with two Ks, where he wrote and played everything. And the spirit, like his delivery and the spirit on those records, because he sings and everything, sound like his songs in The Police that were done there. But he actually brought in a song called Don't Care, and Sting turned it down. That excuse me, then he does his version of it and it does well enough in England that they get on top of the pops with this song. But because he's pretending not to be this character as a pseudonym, it's him with the police. He's playing like bass and singing and then there's Sting behind him and Andy and then whoever else is in their band and they're all wearing masks and like makeup and stuff. So you can find that video too of them doing Don't Care. And it sounds like a Stuart punky sort of song because he played everything on it. Is that, but could, I just, could you really find cool. that on www.youtube.com? Is it on the YouTube or do we have to go to like Snopes? <laughs> Is Dave, and, do you, and do you have the URL for that? Uh, it, the Snopes one I do know actually by heart is www.snopes.com. Thank you. So I want to ask you. you this. Is there anything in your career that you'd like to take your name off of? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing there's one thing that I wrote with Ken Marino that we fought very hard to put our name on but lost in the Writers Guild arbitration and then we were ended up glad we lost because it was a movie that was uh highly derided both by the public and the critics um and so uh, I'll tell you what it was it was called the That's My Boy Oh, yeah. really? was that the old man? The old man? No, it's right. Adam Sandler and uh, yeah, Adam Sandler yeah. and Andy Samberg. Yeah, uh, about a a kid who has an affair with his teacher, and it's um, it was uh, very hated uh, all all across the board. Um, and An we Adam had a, Sandler movie talking, was it, hated. I mean, it didn't. It's it didn't suck balls. I mean, dude, the fat guy wins the marathon at the end. I thought it was funny, and you know, a lot of what's in there is written by me and Ken Marino. But uh, no, most people will never know that, and that's probably fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Morty, you got another fact? I do actually. They took a break from recording the album to play a BBC show called "Rock Goes to College" that featured up-and-coming new bands doing gigs in small venues. Uh, if you, by the way, if you can find any of those, they're incredible. When you look at the roster, of, like Boomtown Rats, like guys like are our age will go crazy for it. What's it called? Like, uh, it's called rock goes to college. Cool. It was a takeoff. Cause they had a thing in the, in the fifties called jazz. It's like jazz goes to the Academy. So right. it was sort of like a British retake of it, but it's bands doing full sets in small venues, 
which is incredible. And at that show, all the songs were from Outlandist Demur. Oh, I've except, seen that. It's so yeah, great. Yeah. Except for one song, which they debuted that night. It's the first time they ever played Message in a Bottle live. So cool. Which is really cool. Before the record had come out and possibly maybe they had just recorded it or were just about to record it. Yeah. So that's so awesome. So they played that live for the first time? Yeah, everything else is from the the record before it, and except they go, here's a new one that we're working on right now, and it's Message in a Bottle. All right, David, what yeah. was your first time like? I was in a tent at summer camp. Nice. In a teepee. <laughs> under a Wet. teepee. Wet, no, no, no. hot. No, no, no. <laughs> then, no, then, no. Uh, we we made out in the teepee, and then we, decide, then we planned out having a first time, and then we uh, went to the... Um, to the clearing, like under the stars, like the campfire site and snuck wow. out, you know, it was like, you're not allowed to do that. And we snuck out out there and we had it all like planned out for like a week and then made it happen. Dude. Wow. Shit goes down a, at summer impressed. camp, man. Like I, yeah, I for, me it did. Dude, for me too, for me too. Where'd you go? I went to Seneca Creek camp in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, sure you did. Dude. Hamburger Hill, which was like the mount, because my camp wasn't a sleepaway camp. It was it was two weeks, and on the final uh, Friday over to Saturday, we'd have a, a sleepover up on Hamburger right. Hill, and man, all that sexual energy, and I mean, like I did, I, I did stuff at camp way too young, way too young, and and I'm trying to get my my son to want to go to camp. He doesn't want to, and I'm like, you're gonna you're gonna want. <laughs> Tell him that story. <laughs> yeah. Tell him that it's story. Like, it's like shit goes down at camp, man. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't know about now, but but God, I mean, first boobs I ever touched. It was it was just to give you an idea of when it was. Uh, we uh, we were listening to Color Me Bad. I want to sex you up. How many boobs? She had four, four Whoa. boobs. Wow. Uh, it was great. It was great. It was great. I actually linked up with her not too long ago. Not like uh, we 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 called each other or Facetimed each other. Like LinkedIn, LinkedIn. I found what, her on LinkedIn. She's she's a school teacher in Australia. It's crazy too because she's American, but now she has an Australian accent. Um, I have to um, call out before it's over uh, Morty's T-shirt because the Pretenders actually are my favorite band. What like number one? And Ohio, I knew. And you Ohio, were exactly. And and that's that. That's a style of shirt that drummer Martin Chambers often wears on stage. He does well if they, if they kept him in the band. I hope. Yeah. Th- yeah. That's a band that I'm excited to dig into. Uh, I, like I only know. Um, God, what's the what's the big song? Uh, Brass and Pocket. No, no, the uh, middle of the road. No, fuck, I can't even. Th- um, it's gonna hurt me because he probably knows what's that one. I'll be there for you or whatever that. Oh no, I was. I think I, just, I think I just got the them, sad dog. No, I think I just got them mixed up with uh, the replacements. Oh, oh well, God, another of my all time yeah. favorites. Their first two albums, Pretender. I was thinking of this earlier. There's debuts because the police are one of those bands that fascinatingly love their first two albums, but it's not like the Cars' first album or the Pretenders' first album where, where they they're all, or Weezer Park or the Violent Femmes, yeah. yeah, yeah, or Weezer, where literally I go, that might be a perfect album. Neither of the Police first. In fact, I think Zenyatta Mandata is the closest they come to a hit to shit ratio and even that's got like behind my camel and some stuff on it God, that love even it. the band did you're like. so right pretenders is like unbelievable it is crazy absolutely just shattering yeah 
Oh. And Weezer is probably one of the last. There's only a few bands where I go, wow. Like when you listen to Weezer's Blue Album, you just go, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. Holy shit, it doesn't stop. I just love it's that like, you said hit to shit ratio. Yeah. That is it's my one new of the favorite. New, one of the new quick. That's new. Yeah. We're, we're incorporating that into the show. Um, all right, quick questions, then we'll get you out of here. Here we go. Uh, David, favorite song on the record? Message in a Bottle. I, I know it's boring, but answer, but it's true. Nope, I dig it. All right, least favorite song on the record? The the, the comedy one. The comedy one? All right. And any other day. What, what, called? Yeah. what song on this record would you have eight-hour tantric uh, sting sex to? Hmm. <sighs> Regatta de Blanc. Because no. I would be like, oh. <laughs> 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 uh, All right, now, last one. Does Here this- I go. Here I go. <laughs> um, all right, does this record deserve to be on the 500 greatest albums list, and is it ranked accordingly? Certainly in, in my uh, limited scope of music that I know, 100%. It would probably be in my top 50. Okay. Um, should it be higher or lower? I, I guess, uh, you know, it's definitely not as a whole album, like a perfect piece of, uh, art. So I would, I think it's, uh, I would put it in the top hundred for sure. So then why, why do you think it's, why do you think it's on the, the list then? I think it's on the list because it is, it's a truly representative album of an incredible band at, in the middle of their most productive and, and creative time and deserves to be on for that reason. And there's, uh, you know, to me, it's really, it also includes one of the greatest songs of all time. Yeah. Which is message in the bottle. Totally. And that's, that's enough of a reason as well. That's a perfect answer. Uh, David, this was so much fun, man. I, I appreciate you coming on, buddy. What I a had pleasure. A blast. How uh, much fun. Do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, just go ahead. Not really, but every, everything about me is at davidwayne.com. W A I N. And uh, I do sort of a piano bar on um, Clubhouse and Twitch on Monday nights right now. And All right. You can just check out some of what I've been, dumb things I've been churning out during the uh, quarantine uh, at my website. Okay, done. Uh, Morty, is there anything you want to? Yeah, you'll see me on Clubhouse also. It's DJ Morty Coyle. I listen to, I listen to David's. I've gone on there before and he just goes to the piano and he goes, hold on one second. Here, let me just try that. And then he just goes to the piano and I'm just like, this is awesome. Yeah, so, I play yeah, songs dude. on request, even though I don't know them. And it's usually disastrous, but entertaining. That's it's great. really entertaining. If you guys are on Club, if I could ever get Josh to go on Clubhouse I, or JT. So, um, apps. Uh, so anyway, so yes, uh, DJ Morty Coyle on Twitter, uh, B and Daddy Cartoons on Instagram, uh, turning to <laughs> Fokker Force 5 Tuesday nights on Facebook Live and listen to the guys play music. And then shout out to TJ Rosh. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right. Another Fleece Army listener who is always reposting and being so uh, so nice to us and just liking our little things. And you know so he's TJ, a Holocaust denier, right? You know that. Uh, you know, you know what? But I can lean denier. into that. Just let you know all of it, or just like the just the outfits. He, he just he doesn't. Believe I'll tell it. you this: doesn't believe it slimming. Oh, okay. Maybe okay. It, well, then I. Who are we to say? Yeah, I don't know. Were you <laughs> Thank there? You. Have you been to the museum? I wasn't there. Yeah. Um, I have one more thing I, I would promote if, if, I, if I could. Please. Um, I, we made this TV show that I feel like was underseen called Medical Police. It's on Netflix. Came out about a year ago. It's about a worldwide pandemic, um, but it's a comedy, action, thriller, suspense, comedy, dumb comedy show. And uh, I love it. 
You wasn't it, it a spinoff? Wasn't it a spinoff from Children's, spin-off Hospital? Of Children's Hospital? Yeah. Okay. It was the Adult Swim series we did. Yeah. By the way, great I, show. By I, the way, yeah. Oh, it was great. I, I, dude, by the way, I wanted to say this, David. Like, I loved Stella so much. Um, oh, it, thanks. It's such a great show, man. That was like when that was on. It was just, it was just the perfect comedy for me to watch while I got stoned on my parents' couch. It was that was definitely a big example of I can't believe anyone's letting us do this. Yeah, I mean, but it's it's great, dude. It's great. JT, you got anything to promote? JT underscore podcast exec on social and at NC podcasts for next chapter podcast. We have a new podcast about trauma. Ooh, let's not talk about it. (laughs) Is that what it's called? That's exactly what it's called. Yeah, and Macbeth. You still doing Macbeth, Macbeth, right? And Macbeth. Episode three, this Friday. Oh, Beautiful. You're, you're you're hitting the deep shit, JT. You are. That's it, man. Trauma, <laughs> Don't say the theater. Holocaust. Deep. Michael Ian Black, we're coming for you. <laughs> uh, David, thank you again, buddy. I appreciate it. That was fun. Thanks, guys. What did I tell you? What did I tell you? The one and only David Wayne. Follow him on all social media at David Wayne, D-A-V-I-D-W-A-I-N. And go to his website, davidwayne.com. Welp, we just listened to the police from 79. So for new music this week, we have Broken Wit Rebels. They're a rock quintet from Birmingham, England that's toured all of Europe and the UK. And you're listening to their 2017 track, Guns. Their long-awaited second album, OK Hotel, is out now, and you can find links for that on our website, the500podcast.com. Send us your music, guys, because we want to play it if you're directly influenced by one of these albums or artists. We'll play it at the end of the podcast. We'll put it on our website, 500podcast at gmail.com is the email link. Send us the song. Put the album and artist that influenced you in the subject line. Next week, we have Arctic Monkeys Week. Righto. It's a lot of British people coming up on the podcast. We're going through whatever people say I am. That's what I am not. Uh, it's their 2006 record. Do your homework. Stay fleecy. Good with it. Got my teeth on the diamond where I was born and raised. Struck a match on the water, dreamt out the city. Yeah, the city barely came alive. I can't stop. Never gone.
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hey, what's up? My name's Lurk, and I'm the host of Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Every week, I have in-depth conversations with bands from all over the scene, big and small. We also like to keep our finger on the pulse and showcase up-and-coming bands on the show as well. So come check out Lamgoat's Van Flip Podcast. Next Chapter Podcasts.